You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Graham Davis is an award-winning journalist who, like me, was born in Fiji. He was deeply involved inside the Bani Marama government and then ultimately saw there needed to be change in Fiji and so campaigned to help end that government. At first, he was an enthusiastic supporter of the new government led by Sedevini Rambuka, but he's become disillusioned with the political and constitutional developments back in our home country. To discuss Fiji's coup culture and political developments, he joins me now. Graham Davis, welcome to The Crunch. Thanks, Cam. Now, for our listeners' edification, uh, you're a Kaiviti, like me, born in Fiji. Yes, that's right. A a few years ahead of me, I might add. Um, (laughs) Not that many, old boy. (laughs) No, but, uh, you know, uh, you were brought up in Fiji uh, and then went on to become essentially a journalist and foreign correspondent. You've won a few awards. And then you went back to Fiji to to uh, help out the Bainimarama Marama government. Yeah, I thought it'd well, be look, a good, I thought it'd be a good yeah. idea, Graham, before we get started on what's happening now in Fiji, to do a little bit of a history on the coup culture and the things that we've witnessed as people who were born in Fiji, and and you know the hopes and things that we might have might have ended at some point, but it looks like we're heading back towards that coup culture again. Yes. Well, look, you know, Cam, as you know, uh, Fiji gained its independence from Britain in 1970. And there were very high hopes that it would actually, you know, defy the trends in the third world to kind of go downhill, take the Zimbabwe road, and that Fiji could be an example to the world. And in fact, the visiting Pope in 1986 visited Fiji, um, Pope uh, Paul, uh, I think it was, and said Fiji you know, was was the way the world should be because there was racial harmony and economic progress and all of that. Well, all that came to an end in 1987 when Sitaveni Rambuka, who 36 years later is again the Prime Minister, mm. staged, uh, staged two coups in 1987. And, of course, he did it in the name of Indigenous supremacy. You know, the, at, the, at that time, Fiji, the majority population in Fiji were the Indians who'd been brought by the British to work in the cane fields. Yep. They outnumbered the Itaque. The Itaque felt threatened, or certainly that's what Rambuka said. So as number three in the military at the time, he staged the first coup in May 1987 and then another one later in the year. And this was to you know, to assert Indigenous supremacy. Mm. Um, You know, it's quite a long story in the sense that sort of after a period of military rule, you know, Sitiveni Rambuka won an election and and for some years was the democratically elected leader of Fiji and sort of Fiji returned to parliamentary rule. And everything was fine. What happened in in 2000, if you'll recall, was the George Spate Rebellion, which was against, you know, an Indian uh, uh, or Indo-Fijian elected prime minister called Mahendra Chowdhury. Now, he was removed by Spate with the support of some elements of the military. And, of course, after a period in which this was put down and George Spate became the last person to be sentenced to death in Fiji, uh, to hang by the neck, but this was subsequently sort of commuted to life imprisonment, and he, he remains in jail in Fiji. He's quite um, mad, isn't he? Well, I, you know, it's it's hard to know. I mean, he's he certainly had delusions of grandeur at the time. 
Mm. But but he still commands a tremendous amount of support. And in fact, you know, there have been moves by the present government um, led by Rambuka and his attorney general, a guy called Siromi Turanga, who's, you know, a a fanatical Christian and also an indigenous supremacist to free George Spate. Now, the, the current military have said that that's not on. Yeah, and that that would trigger an immediate coup. So the plans to release Spate that that were being mooted earlier in the year haven't come to pass. But look, to cut a long story short, and and I know you wanted to dwell on some of the background of this, in 2006, uh, Frank Bainimarama staged a coup in Fiji against the ethno-nationalists, yeah, at that stage led by a guy called Lysanir Garase. So the military took over, they imposed their will on the country. Now, Ngarase was hopelessly corrupt, wasn't he? Well, I look, you know, what is corrupt in the Fijian context? I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to point a particular finger at him because, you know, there are, there are all sorts of shenanigans that go on in the place. Suffice it to say, though, that his indigenous supremacist uh, agenda included. Uh, a thing called the Gorlingorli Bill, which would have required uh, non-Itauke or non-Indigenous people to pay to use natural resources, like to pay to go to the beach, to pay to go fishing, uh, you know, even though they were full citizens. Now, that was unacceptable to Frank Bainimarama as head of the military, and he, and he staged a coup and removed Garase. Until 2014, Fiji was ruled with an iron fist by Frank Bainimarama, yeah. In 2013, he and his attorney general, a guy called Ayas Said Kayum, produced a constitution. Now, the constitution, there were sort of, you know, superficial consultations, but essentially it was foisted on the country. And yeah. for the first time, that constitution provided for a common and equal citizenry in which, you know, every vote was equal because it was weighted in favour of the Indigenous people in previous constitutions. Um, a 1990 constitution and a 1997 constitution. So, in other words, uh, Bainimarama and Kayum levelled the playing field. Yeah, they they also I mean, those are admirable admirable goals, weren't they? That well, absolutely. I, yeah, I think you supported it, didn't you? Well, well, well I As think I you did. and I both did. We we, yeah, were, we were quite vocal, saying, "Well, this is the way forward. We you can't have a country that's separated by race." And, you know, ironic, you know, given that you. You live in Australia and you've just had the voice uh, debate. Yeah. And in New Zealand, we've got this ongoing co-governance and uh, treaty principles debate that's going on in New Zealand. We only need to look at Fiji on what happens if you do start having laws where race is separated in particular parts of it to see what a disaster that ends up in. I mean, City of Rambuka's first two coups were entirely race-based. It was about subjugating the the Indian population, the Indo-Fijian population. And then we had, you know, Baini Marama, who supposedly was going to now create this equality. And this is why we supported him, you know, because because here he was working hand-in-glove with an Indo-Fijian and saying we're all one people that included people like ourselves who yeah. sometimes are disparagingly called Kaivalangi, right? Foreigners. Yeah. And yeah. in actual fact, we were born in Fiji. I was born in Suva. You were born 
In Suva as well. In I Suva. think we were born in the same maternity unit, right? Probably, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, where, is, where is much Fijian as anybody else? And, and so it was welcome to hear somebody who's Itaukai saying, we're all the same. You're born in well, Fiji. Well, you see, but, you're a see Fijian. this is the thing. I know, Cam, and this is the, this is, but this is the thing. Even today, a lot of Itaukai don't accept the fact that if you're born in Fiji, that that makes you a, a full citizen, a Fijian. Mm. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that, that has caused a huge amount of upset in Fiji since, since uh, Rambuka came back to power uh, by one vote on the floor of the parliament last mm. December is that he endorsed the notion that Itauke refer to Fiji citizens born in Fiji as Bulangi. Now, Bulangi means visitor. Yeah, it's now, rude. Now, well, well, well it, it, it is rude, but it's also interpreted by non-Itake as a fundamental assault on the constitutional provision for a common and equal citizen citizenry yeah. and a common identity. Because Bainimarama Marama made everybody Fijian. Now that was yeah. against that was that was against you know a, a huge protest by the Itake who who actually believed that this English word Fijian. Mm. Uh, Belongs to them, yeah. Yeah. Now, so That's this has been I, a simmering, simmering problem, and so it's also important for the audience in New Zealand to realise this, Cam, which you already know. Yes. Since 1987, tens of thousands of Indo-Fijians and people of other races left Fiji, yeah. so that the so that the indi indigenous people now compromise more than sixty percent of the population. Right. Yeah. They own ninety four percent of the total land surface. They were never dispossessed in the way Maori or Aborigines were in Australia. Yeah. So there is no threat at whatsoever to them in terms of their position in national life, and yet they have this this kind of uh, notion that somehow you know they should have supremacy and ascendancy over the other races. And, and this is one of the great ironies, as far as I'm concerned. Itauke come and live in Australia and New Zealand, yeah? They're benefiting yep. from these work programs and everything else. They get full entitlement to everything. No one in Australia says, oh, listen, you know, you don't belong here. You're a visitor here. You know, they come and go. And, in fact, Fiji's second biggest revenue earner, and during the pandemic its first biggest revenue, was remittances sent by Fijians working, yeah. you know, in the, the diaspora the, back yeah. home, Yeah. Exactly, we, we, you so, know. So I have, yeah. I have, you know, in a, in extremists described Fiji as a beggar nation because it's dependent on Fijians living overseas sending money back to to their people. It's dependent on foreign aid, and it's dependent on the tourists, you know, including New Zealanders who go to Fiji and keep the whole the whole place afloat. And the, and the uh, United Nations who rent their soldiers. Well, exactly, yeah. and something. I mean, something really. Very disturbing has happened recently in relation to this government, and that is, as you know, there was a vote at the United Nations, you know, sponsored by the Arab countries, for there to be a humanitarian ceasefire um, in Gaza to enable them to get mm. sort of you know relief to some to the civilians in in Gaza and to end the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. New Zealand, as you know, supported the humanitarian resolution. Australia yeah. abstained, but Fiji sided with Israel. To, to support the continuation of the bombardment when it has peacekeepers, Fijian peacekeepers, in the Middle East. Now, I would have thought that that was a folly of the first order because it immediately makes them targets. 
Right. And, and in 2014, Fijian peace, peacekeepers were kidnapped and held hostage by a group called Al-Nazra. And it took um, Qatar and various other Arab countries to come to Fiji's assistance and and to pay, uh, you know, ransoms am- amounting to tens of millions of dollars for the release of these people. Now, is that, are those ransoms going to be forthcoming now that Fiji has voted with Israel at the UN? Well, I mean, you know, it's tens of millions of dollars that the UN remits to Fiji for renting its soldiers. And uh, into 2014, I was actually in Israel when that happened, when they were yeah. kidnapped by Anusra. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was up on, on Mount Bental in the Golan Heights and, uh, you know, when it happened. And there were actually right. some Fijian soldiers there and I was having a good old chin wag with them when the news broke and they were sort of up sticks and bugged out ready to go and get their mates back and they were all all ready to go for it. So you know I, I remember that uh, very very clearly um yeah in 2014 you know and it's funny because I went to Israel via uh, Suva because I yeah. interviewed Frank Bainimarama after he just won the election in 2014. Yeah, uh, and so you know, I I remember that very starkly, and yeah. uh, it just shows though that there's there's something strange happening in Fiji at the moment. And that's why I wanted to to get you on my show, yeah. so that we could kind of like unravel it because the media here uh, has a somewhat slanted view of Fiji, and the general population in New Zealand, and I imagine it's the same in Australia. The only time they think about Fiji is when they're going for their winter holidays or um, one or two of the uh, All Blacks or Wallabies team are from Fiji. Um, That's it's about the only contact. Or or when there's a coup. Or when there's a coup, right? (laughs) Now, now you know and I know that apart from the spate coup, that coups in Fiji are, are somewhat circumspect as far as coups worldwide go. I mean, you know, they you don't mean in the have, sense that they're they're not they don't have deaths or whatever. Yeah, they sort killed. of like there's they block off about three blocks in, in Suva and a couple of bridges, and um, that's pretty much it. You know, life yeah. goes on around. In fact, you know, I've I've had you know mates as as you have tell us that it's actually quite good having a coup in Fiji because it solves the crime problem for a while. Well, this is a very important thing. If this was Papua New Guinea, it might be different, yeah? Because mm, Papua yeah. New Guinea, the people of Papua New Guinea, as you know, are armed to the teeth. Yeah. Um, the military in Fiji has always uh, made ensured that the military, the RFMF, is the only are the only people in Fiji who have weapons, right? Yeah. So that the police aren't armed and the civilians are, aren't armed. And so that accounts for the fact that the, may account for the fact that there have been minimum casualties in, in 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 these altercations in the past. Yeah. But but you you hit on a very important point there. Um, and look, I don't blame Australian and New Zealand media, except for their relative lack of interest in the Pacific, until now, of course, because it's changing because you know everyone's worried about Chinese influence. Yes, because you know, as, as far as Fiji is concerned, I mean, you know, you were born there, I was born there, but but we'd still have to, you know, acknowledge the truth of the of, of Churchill saying about Russia, you know, that to, to coin that phrase, that Fiji is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Yeah, it's incredibly hard to find out what what the hell's going on there at any one time. And the coconut wireless, as it's affectionately called in Fiji, and for listeners. Who who think that that's an insult? That's actually what people call it in Fiji. 
the coconut wireless is faster than any media or electronic form uh, known to man. Uh, yes, and that's in the Pacific generally because I was I was fascinated when I went to New Caledonia that they call it, you know, radio uh, cocotier. So it's, kind of, <laughs> it's, a, it's a Pacific thing, you know. Um, yeah, the drums of rumour. Uh, yeah, somebody beat, in Nandi. Course, yeah, someone in Nandi or Lombasa knows what's going on in Suva before the people in Suva know what's going on in Suva. It, well, it's well, that, it's well, that, that quick. That's sometimes true, but but of course the other problem is Cam, and you you that you'd understand this that every story in the retelling, you know, is modified in some way so that once it's retold sort of a dozen times. You know, it can be a very re- remote um, resemblance of the original story. Yes. <laughs> so, so the rumor mill in Fiji, you know, turns away relentlessly. And I mean, I've got a, a, a daily blog on politics, and it's just one of the biggest things, one of the biggest challenges I have really is to separate rumor from fact. Yeah. And I have a policy that, you know, if I get something wrong, that I, that I correct it and I apologize. Yep. Fortunately, that doesn't happen too often, but only because I've had, you know, international media training in which, you know, you you generally try to make sure that what you're reporting is correct. You can never be 100% certain, but, no, but, you've also but at least got you're a, making an, an effort. Yeah? yeah, you've also got a network of people, you know, that are in business or, you know, it's like me as well, you know, when I'm dealing with Fiji, uh, or talking, I always you know make sure I talk to you or I talk to some of the other people that I've known that are in government or not in government or in business, just to try and get a feel of what's going on. But you know, I've found in the last few months it devilish, devilishly difficult to get any semblance or or, or a, a view of where the direction of travel is in in well, Fiji and the government. Well, look, there's a there's a pretty easy explanation. For that, for, for that, right? Mm. Most people, even though Fiji first got more votes than anyone else in in, in, in the last election, yeah, um, and they're the majority. You know, they're the biggest block in the parliament. There was a huge movement for change. I mean, Bainimarama and Kayum had become increasingly dictatorial, increasing, increasingly authoritarian. They had begun to breach, you know, the very constitution that they had imposed on the country. And there was a huge sentiment for change. And Rambuka, Sitiveni Rambuka, managed, you know, uh, mm. quite cleverly, really, to persuade everybody that he, you know, he was a leopard who changed his spots. He was no longer the indigenous supremacist of 1987. But a man for all people. Yes, he convinced me. I, well, in fact, this was the thing. I said, I'm I'm willing to accept the fact that he's changed, but I did uh, recommend that people vote for uh, his coalition partner, the National Federation Party led by Bim Prasad, as a means, which is a moderate party compared to, you know, um, uh, my perception certainly of City of Enderim Booker's People's Alliance. But, you know, I've, I've had to be very critical of Bim Prasad because he's allowed City of Enderim Booker in the 11 months since uh, the last election in, in, in December to pursue these policies which are not in the best interests of non-Italke and non-Indigenous people. And also, they are putting at risk national stability because they're doing exactly what the military in Fiji have said that they must not do, and that is that they are defying the 2013 Constitution and its provisions. Yeah. And maybe this is a good time to lead to the current thing, 
Cam, because it's it, you know at the end, at year's end after eleven months of these guys, there's a constitutional crisis looming and the very real prospect of a military intervention again. Well, see, this is uh, like just before we get into that. I mean, I, I met uh, Pio Tikkunduudu many, you know, many times, had discussions with him, and he always struck me as a, in, you know, a man of integrity, a straight yeah, up yeah, shooter, good he, guy. Yeah, he 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 actually went to war with with Baini Marama inside the Baini Marama government, uh, and he was treated appallingly uh, uh, by. By Bainu Marama and and particularly by the then Attorney General, yeah, uh, and left and there was all sorts of rumours that he 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 had all these diseases and all these things were going on, but you know he's still there. And well, I, he, look, <laughs> I struggle he, to see how he can sit there uh, propping up a government uh, that appears to be acting against the best interests of every Fijian. Well. Well, there is that. Um, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, leaving aside the question of motive and what have you, you know, you've got to remember that these people are, my, they, they, these are my minority parties, yeah? Yes. There's a five There's a five percent threshold that you have to meet in Fiji to get any seats in the parliament at all, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the National Federation Party only just made it across the threshold for them to get three seats, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now you know the same happened with the, the with Sedelpa, which is the other member of the coalition. Uh, the, you know the, the triple, the, the three legged stool they call it, the People's Alliance, the National Federation Party, and Sedelpa. Rembuka gutted Sedelpa though, didn't he? When he well, he, split away yes, he, and created the People's Alliance, a lot of the people from Sedelpa went there, and they're they're essentially a rump party. Yes. But 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 they delivered government uh, yes. by the by one vote to you know the existing coalition that had been formed before the election between the People's Alliance and the National Federation Party. But, but just to return to your too, point, just to return to your point, mm. the reason why these guys are enablers and appeasers is that they have they have got cabinet positions which they would otherwise not have. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been, they've been propelled into positions of power because of the uh, of the arrangements uh, that, that have you know that have been forged, and they need to keep the coalition in power, whatever it takes. Yeah. Now, yeah. now I've I've waged a, a big campaign against the minister for education in in the coalition who beat and tortured his ex wife, who happened to be Sitiveni Rambuka's daughter, right. Mm. To the point where Rambuka found her bloodied in the family home and only just got her to hospital in time to save her life. He is now one, he is now not only one of Rambuka's ministers in the cabinet, he's the minister for education, right? So, so mm. a domestic violence perpetrator is in charge of the futures of Fiji and young people. Now, now, why is that happening? Uh, yeah. And and without any protest whatsoever from the women's movement in Fiji, it's because of their desperation to keep the coalition uh, in power and stave off uh, any return by Bainu Marama. But Bainu Marama is not going to come back, is he? I mean, he he's out of parliament. Uh, he escaped. Well, being, he was prosecuted, but was was eventually um, wasn't convicted. No, but, but but Cam, I don't know whether you're aware. Um, the illegal 
acting a, a director of public prosecutions, has appealed yeah. the acquittal, and Barney Marama and Sitiveni Gilio, the, the suspended police commissioner, are back mm. in court this week again because the acting DPP has appealed their acquittals and has asked the High Court without any hearing to, 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 on the basis of his allegation that the magistrate got it wrong to, to record guilty verdicts against them. So... Well, this uh, is just going to cause this, this more is, unrest and more uncertainty. I mean, the the whole uh, replacement of the director of public prosecutions was was is illegal anyway. What, well, what, what, what went on well, there? Well, not well, not so much that in this in a sense. And this is very important. As somebody you know and is a New Zealander, so people listening will be interested. Yeah. A New Zealander uh, called Christopher Pride, one of has the most been, straight up people I've ever met. Well, that's yeah. why he was appointed in the first place, yeah. yeah. So he, so mean, he, he was the, he's straight as an arrow, that guy. Yeah. So he was DPP for the best part of a decade. Yeah. Um, after the election, he was photographed at a public function at the Japanese uh, embassy residence talking to the ousted Attorney General Ayaz Syed Kayum. Yeah. The, the, the new Attorney General, Siromi Turanga, ordered the acting chief justice who by the way had you know replaced somebody else in that job as of chief justice who was accused of misbehavior mm. they relieved christopher pride of his position they suspended him on a charge of misbehavior for being seen in public with a member of the previous government and 7 months later his case has not been heard by a tribunal of three judges which the constitution stipulates must happen yeah yeah and 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 so he's still waiting for justice to be done i mean this is the kind of thing that's going on and 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 so that was one that's that's the defiance of the constitution on one level yes but what this new appointment to the as acting chief justice has done is even more serious he has appointed two individuals to senior uh, officers of state whose appointments are in violation of the constitution. One of these guys, the acting director of public prosecutions, a guy called John Rambuku, was found guilty of professional misconduct by the Legal Services Commission. And on that basis, the constitution specifically prohibits him from holding that job. Similarly, a Supreme Court judge and court, court of appeal judge by the name of Alipati Kataki, he too was found uh, guilty of professional misconduct by the Legal Services Commission. Uh, that didn't stop the, the current acting Chief Justice appointing those two people. Now, this is outrageous in the sense that it is a full-blown assault on the Constitution, yeah? So what's happening is that the Fiji Law Society, and I, and, I, and I'm telling you this, and it's it's a breaking story in the sense that sort of no one else has got it. Exclusive it's, to Reality Check Radio it's, it's, at this point. Absolutely exclusive to uh, to your program. The Fiji Law Society, which is the national group of lawyers um, in private practice, is preparing a court challenge to these unlawful appointments of the acting DPP and the Supreme Court judge, which will be an unprecedented showdown. Yeah, It'll pit the legal profession against the judiciary. Yep. And it's come about specifically because the acting Chief Justice appointed by this government has defied the Constitution and refuses to accede to the demands of the nation's lawyers that these illegal appointments be reversed. Now, 
there's been a whole lot. That has huge implications, doesn't it, Graham? Because what most New Zealanders don't understand, and particularly Australians as well wouldn't understand, is that the constitution that we're talking about here that's essentially being abrogated by this government, Mm. a key part of that constitution is the provision of the Royal Military of Fiji. Yeah. To guard the constitution and act as necessary to protect the constitution. Absolutely. So so what we are seeing here is we're actually on the cusp of another coup, aren't we? Well, look, it can, you know, we are very close to a military intervention. Mm. Um, And if I could just refer to that clause in the constitution that you mentioned, section 1312 of the constitution, and it says this, right? It shall be the overall responsibility of the Republic of Fiji military forces to ensure at all times the security, defence and well-being of Fiji and all Fijians. Now, that that is a very broad statement. Yeah, You can take that whichever way you want. But this year alone, we know that the commander of the RFMF, Major General Raw, John A. Colony Y, has warned the government, the new government, at least three times in person and in writing that he expects them to obey the constitution. The RFMF has always regarded itself as the custodian uh, and guardian of the 2013 constitution. So, you know, we're entering very dangerous territory here. Now, there's a few uh, memoranda that have come out of the camp, out of the barracks, isn't there, Uh, which have credibility. And you've published several of those. Uh, presumably, you've verified that these are have come out of senior officers within the army of the concerns well, that they have. I mean, this is the thing. You know, you, you talk about verification. Mm-hmm. I have done what I can to verify these. Yeah. But the but, but the most important thing is that nobody at a high level in the RFMF has said when I've published these things, this is wrong. Grub sheet, uh, which is the name of my. My, my yeah. Facebook page has got this wrong. Um, so, you know, I have published these in good faith, yes. saying saying they are purported to have emerged from the military. But there is absolutely no doubt about the fact that the commander of the RFMF has told the government that the military expects them to obey the constitution and they're not doing it. Which then leads to the possibility that the military will intercede to restore the constitution. And if that means removing the elected government, so be it. Well, there's another stage before that, and that is the the possibility of a constitutional coup in that the government itself is very unstable. Um, There's another piece of news which, which I can break, that there was a recent direct challenge to the prime minister when a deputation led by his deputy, a guy called Manor Kamikamida, went to him and demanded that he step down. Now, apparently, according to the information I've received, the, the NFP leader, Beamant Prasad, intervened on Rambuka's behalf and told Kamikamida and his supporters that he would take the NFP out of the coalition unless they backed off. But this restiveness in the government, right, this threat to uh, Rambuka's position is very real. Now, this is uh, what I'm about to tell you is also cr- a crucial p- building block of what we're, where we're going with this, and that is that although the constitution 
stipulates that you can't have a fresh election in Fiji for 18 months uh, uh, until 18 months after you know the the poll, and we're what 11 months out from the from the 2022 election. A motion of no confidence in the prime minister can be called at any time by any MP. Now there well, are we're, we're sort of at 12 months now, aren't we? So there's in six months' time that that uh, facility becomes available. Yeah, but there's also the possibility that any that in the parliamentary session that begins next week, there could be a motion of no confidence in Rambuka, which would not only bring him down but bring his cabinet down. And if Sidelpa, as the rumor mill has it, is contemplating doing a deal with Fiji first to bring down the government, this leaves open the possibility of a constitutional coup against Rambuka. Yeah, that, yeah. that it's that it's all that it's all kosher. Um, you know, to, to use the, 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 the Israeli, Israeli expression, and that the international community doesn't get upset, and the, and there's a relatively smooth transfer. But of but, power. but but you and I both know that, and and this is for our listeners' benefit. Yeah, Fiji First and Sadelpa have been at war since the first coup by uh, Bainu Maram. Yeah, and but there there are there are some intriguing. This is this is the riddle wrapped in the enigma, yeah. Um, yeah, it's the, the emergence the, of Linda Tambua, isn't it? No, before that, it's that yeah. uh, the leader of Sadopa, the parliamentary leader of Sadopa, Viliami Gaboka, is the father-in-law of Ayaz Syed Kayum, yeah. who was Baini Marama's partner all through those years. Yes. See, this is Fiji. This is what happens in small countries, you know, all of these kind of... Um, you know, filial relationships as well as sort of um, uh, cronyism. Yeah, it's cronyism, so, nepotism, all wrapped up in in with intrigue and double dealing and backstabbing and everything else that goes with it, all around yeah. the carver bowl. I mean, it's it's Pacific. It's you know Byzantine behaviour writ large in the Pacific. There, yeah, <laughs> and it's not just Fiji, of course. You know, the same thing happens in P and G Solomon's and various other places. But we are entering a period of danger because if the military stipulation that the constitution must be adhered to is being challenged by the acting chief justice, the head of the judiciary and the alternative head of state, and he refuses to, to back down not to the demands of the politicians but the country's lawyers, this increases the pressure and increases the possibility of 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 a military intervention. Now, I don't think this would be like two thousand and six. Yeah, they're not going to take power themselves. They have absolutely no taste for power themselves. So, what they would probably do in you know in a, in in consultation with the head of state, who's their commander in chief, they could immediately appoint an interim government comprised of you know members of the opposition mm. and whoever else is willing to join it and announce at the same time announce a fresh election date saying that they had no choice but to act because of the threats to the constitution but also because of the instability and that the country would have another chance to sort of have a say in who governed them right yeah i can that, just that's, imagine that's the, the other possibility yeah i can just imagine the british high commission and their staff peering over the back fence at Berkeley Crescent to see the comings and goings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, that's well, where the RFMF strategic headquarters is, just uh, just up the road from the British High Commissioner's uh, residence. That's right. Yes, mm. yes. No, it's it's a, it, it's a fascinating time. 
And see, the thing is, uh, what's changed also is public sentiment. I mean, the, w- when the new government came in, there was a wave of goodwill towards them. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the, the, because there was a sort of this was a this was a change. There were fresh faces and what have you, and and so many things had happened under the Fiji first government and under Bainimarama and Kayum that had upset everybody. Well, I'd but said to the, I said the, to Bainimarama and to Kayum um, ahead of that election, I said, "What you guys forget is that." You, this isn't your second term that you're at the end of. Yeah, you've been in power since since the point you took power at the point of a gun. It's not two terms and people are sick of you. It's it's a legacy of much longer than that. Yeah, sixteen years. Yeah, sixteen yeah. years. 16 like, years. Like Everyone 16 was fed years. up with them. Australian governments and New Zealand governments don't last that long, right? That's so right. Th- they only lasted that long because for a good chunk of that. They were in control of all the guns, yeah. uh, and then they they had uh, one election, and then they scraped by in the second election, and well, they were at the, at the end of that. And of course, they um, they forgot, like all politicians, I guess, uh, and started believing their own press releases. And Absolutely, people, people were sick of them. And and here's the thing, right? Again, for our listeners' benefit. I don't think I explained it properly at the start, but you were deep within the Bainimarama government as an advisor, uh, I was. Speech, speech writer, doing all sorts of things uh, inside the government, but you fell out with them because... Well, well, I didn't fall out with them, funnily enough. I mean, well, it, they it, fell out with I, you. <laughs> well, 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 no, but that happened after I'd left. Yeah? Yes. And it, yeah, and yeah. If I could just explain, this needs a little bit of context. Just give me 30 yes. seconds. Okay, so so the thing was that having been born in Fiji and being brought up with the whole multiracial ideal, it was the only way forward for Fiji to be a success as a nation. Yeah. Uh, when Bainimarama staged his coup in 2006 and the program was to level the playing field, I supported that and I publicly supported that in articles that I wrote. And so in 2012, out of the blue, I got, I got approached by a Washington PR company by the name of Corvus. Mm. Uh, asking me whether I was interested in going back to Fiji to, you know, to work on their account for the Fijian government. And, of course, at the time, I mean, I, I, I was fronting a TV program and various other things, but it was so appealing to me to actually have the ability to sort of make a difference in the in the country of my birth, as I'm sure you understand, I, that, I that understand I took 100%, up this. Completely yeah, and I took up this thing. And I and I was, you know, I was a true believer in that. And, and in fact, you know, I, I, I mean, I I supported them all through 2014. You know, I mean, Frank Bainimarama didn't want to have the election. He wanted to have a referendum on when, whether to have an election. This is privately. Mm. And I said to him, Prime Minister, you can't do that. You've promised the, you know, the world that you're going to have an election and, and you've got to have it and, and we'll help you to win it, yeah, which, of course, yeah. we did and what have you. And so this, is, this all went on quite well. The, sec- the second election that they had in 2018 was different. By this time, I'd started to get a bit disenchanted with them but yeah. but we I still left on very good terms, um, and they thanked me for my service. And, and of course, I went from there to work on on their global on Fiji's global climate campaign. Yes, but of course, in the end, I mean, I, it just became untenable. So I did begin to criticise them uh, at first, um, you know, uh, softly, softly, and then with a big stick. And of course, this is. I mean, I'm hated by both sides in Fiji because because not only by Fiji First who they who they blame me for sort of their defeat um, in in you know in 2022, 
but also by this government. I didn't government, know you were that powerful, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, well, look, this is the thing you see, and, 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 and this is important for people to realise. The mainstream media in Fiji was re- was repressed with, you know, draconian laws by Bainimarama and Kayum. But having been freed by the new coalition government, they're still, uh, you know, not telling people what's actually going on in the country, and this is the, this is what this is the service that I'm providing for people. Well, they're like Pavlov's dogs, aren't they? They've been cowed by their treatment uh, by successive governments over the years that they've lost the ability to question. And, and you know, I saw that when I went up there in 2014 for the first election as a New Zealand journalist, uh, got accreditation went to a whole lot of uh, meetings, particularly at the Fiji elections office with Mohammed Sanim, and nobody would ask him any questions. And there no. was a room full of, there'd be 20, 30 journalists in there, and the only person asking him questions was me. And, and you know, I got taken aside by uh, somebody who said, uh, you know, Cam, you need to dial it back a bit. We don't want these people. <laughs> we don't want these people. We don't want these people learning to ask questions. Yeah, you know, you know and I thought, <laughs> and I thought to myself, how is Fiji ever going to become a you know fully democratic nation if their journalists aren't even trained to hold the powerful to account? Well, the, see, and and there's another thing that's also part of this whole small nation thing. You know, the, the media proprietors in Fiji, mm. uh, you know, who employ these people, of course, want to keep themselves sweet with the government in power. You know, yeah. The, the, the you know the the powers that be the government of the day, and so you know there is nothing like the scrutiny that that is that politicians get subjected to routinely in in, in New Zealand and Australia, which which is a great shame. But but this is this is this is where I decided to come in. I mean nobody pays me. I do I'm retired and I sort of do this in my spare time. But but of course uh, you know I break stories routinely that are not in the Fijian media at all. Yeah, and I mean, this went back to the time of, of, of Barney Rama and Kayu. I mean, that nobody was prepared to tell the country that both of them had left for cardiac transplant operations overseas. Yeah, mm. it was just a sort of national secret, and yet that was, you know, I sort of told everybody about that, for instance. And and none of this stuff I'm telling you about about the Fiji Law Society court challenge to, you know, to the unlawful appointments of the of the acting DPP and the judge. The, the the recent direct challenge to the prime minister by by his own deputy none of those story neither of those stories are in the Fijian media i mean it's it's a culture in which they take the press release ask a couple of perfunctory questions and the government controls the narrative which is a great shame well the government controlled the narrative quite easily under under Bainimarama when they basically took away the uh, advertising from one particular media outlet and gave it all to another one. Uh, exactly, and, and they starved them of of revenue and and all those things. Now, personally, you know, this is what I'm suggesting that the New Zealand government does with our complicit media that have taken millions of dollars of bribes from the from the government here is take away their money and make them play on an even playing field. But I'm not suggesting it should go from one organisation to another, like what happened in Fiji, which was a diabolical scheme that slanted the, the you know, the resources. Well, this is why I'm so, I'm so down on these guys. Uh, having mm. promised to be different, having promised change, having promised to not be like their predecessors, they're exactly like their predecessors. And on the issue of belonging, 
of you know people of ethnicity and different religions belonging, they are much worse than Fiji First. I can't support that under any circumstances, and I don't imagine you you doing so either. Because as you know, you and I are both part of a minority in Fiji, the white minority, mm. and and this fervent ethno nationalism, indigenous supremacy, or whatever, is the antithesis of nation building. You know what I mean? Well, it's never worked anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world that embarks on ethno nationalism, yeah, ends ends in tears at the least, bloodshed at the worst. And I don't and want to see that. Too, I don't want yeah, to see that yeah. in Fiji. I don't want to see the country of my birth brought to its knees with ethnic violence. I, I don't want to see that. I want to see no. Fiji a strong, vibrant democracy that can use its tourism to spread the word around the rest of the Pacific that this is the way you do things. You know, this is the way you conduct yourself. Well, precisely, uh, you and I have exactly the same agenda in relation to that. Yeah, and, um, and, and to because that end, one of the one of the worst things, uh, you know, Cam, is that all of this is triggering another exodus from Fiji of the best and brightest. Yeah, the government's yeah. suddenly in a panic about the brain drain. Yeah, you, we know there are skill shortages in Australia and New Zealand that are being filled by people from the region, including Fiji. Yeah, and of course, you know, why wouldn't they come to New Zealand and Australia if the majority population there is saying we don't want you, you don't belong, etc., etc., etc. And the level of vituperation, particularly on social media, is acute. Yeah, I mean, I get called the you know the effing white, you know, c word, you know, yeah, without any shame on the part of those people who do that. No, I know. It's, I mean, it's in, in Australia, there's laws against it. I don't know about New Zealand. Oh no, you can't do that in New Zealand either. But no, mm. what I've uh, you know I've found astonishing is that level of animosity that there is. And, and you're right. I mean, it's not like where we had land confiscations in New Zealand that have led no. to decades worth of treaty settlements or the, just the complete ignoring of, of uh, a group of people who happened to live in Australia for tens of thousands of years before Abel Tasman and James Cook sailed over the horizon and spied a bit of land. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, just appalling um, behaviour that that happened in the 1700s, 1800s, 19, early part of the 20th century. Yeah, um, there's been none of that in Fiji. Uh, as you say, 94% of the land is controlled by Itaukai. Uh, yeah. the, the the they've always had uh, control of the land. Control of the land should should mean control of the resources. Well, there, there is this sort of fortress mentality, and I mean, I can understand it. We saw it in in South Africa, didn't we, in the mm. in the seventies with the with the Afrikaans. You know, the sort of large, you know, go to the lager mentality. You know, yeah. uh, defend uh, our culture at all costs. And I think that's a feature of, of of these smaller populations around the world. But you're absolutely right. There are no examples of mono ethnic. Uh, nations which have expelled their minorities, and you could you, the whole of East Africa, Uganda, Kenya, you know, whatever. There's multiple examples. When you expel, you know, those minorities, particularly if they're educated and particularly if they're business minded, etc., it degrades your national capability. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And then when you degrade the national capability, and your economy suffers as a result, you end up with uh, and and the, the resulting instability that comes from that, and of course having multiple coups or even having the army step in uh, 
even if it's to enforce new elections, it, it drives tourists away. And if you don't have tourists in Fiji, then you're left with being, like you described, a beggar nation, where yeah. you're, I, I, you're you're relying on remittances or the work from the United Nations, and that's about it. Because if tourism stops to Fiji, there's yeah. a whole lot of people that are reliant on that. Now, what people don't realize is when a coup happens, these sorts of things occur. What happens to the to the Fijian or the Itaukai Fijians? Does they go back to the village? Uh, the people well, who well, suffer yeah. are actually the Indian population because they're the ones who are in these jobs that are reliant on tourism and things like that. Well, look, you know, can I just make this point? I don't think that even if there is a, another military intervention in Fiji, as long as it's not it's nonviolent, and yeah. as long as there is an election date set and and the, and a way forward, I don't think it's going to make any difference to the tourist traffic. Uh, can I just say this? Fiji is absolutely booked out for the next couple of years, according to uh, media reports, you know, in the Fijian media. The post-COVID travel boom, in, you know, which is global, as you know, um, has resulted in Aussies and Kiwis going to Fiji in record numbers. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just shy of a million a year for the first time. And in fact, uh, global bankers are saying that uh, Fiji is hit peak capacity in relation to the tourism industry. And unless they produce another 5,000 hotels in the next few years, they're going to have to turn people away. And, and the economic growth that they're expecting to come from, from, from the increased number of tourists visiting the country won't be realized because they just won't have the capacity to deal with that. So, so and, and the other thing that you, that you I don't need to explain to you is that, that coups have traditionally happened around Suva, which is on the other side of Viti Levu, and the west of Fiji, the western part of, of Viti Levu, which is where the main tourism resorts are, have not really ever been uh, affected by any of the previous coups. So I don't think there's any reason for people to suddenly start saying, oh, well, we won't go to we won't go to Chris. Uh, to, we can't go to Fiji yeah. uh, for Christmas, Dad, because you know there's going to be a coup there. Well, That's you not and the I case. both, you and I both know that, right? But mm. but there is there are a group of people who won't go because when you've got a coup, what happens is governments around the world issue do not travel advices. As soon as you get a do not travel advice, you don't have travel insurance and those sorts of things. Now, well, for me, true. there is a risk. For, yeah, for me though, it, it doesn't do anything, right? Because well, it, it's where I was born. I'd go to Fiji anyway, and, and I know the security situation in a coup um, means it's a whole lot better. Um, not that yeah. it's particularly bad in in any case. I mean, there's there's parts of Auckland uh, that are far worse than uh, than Suva, and even in the worst parts of Suva. And I'm sure there's places in Sydney that you could um, say you just don't go there. Well, but, yes, yeah, you know, but but almost anywhere in Fiji in in Suva, you're happy to go to. It's not a problem. Um, there, are, there has been, though, an increase in, in crime and, and a lot of concern in, of, of ordinary members of the community about the law and order situation. And part of that is because there's now a huge drug problem in Fiji. Yeah, it's, and it's not just marijuana growing no, there. it's methamphetamine. It's methamphetamine trade is huge. And as you know, some of that's been linked to New Zealand. So this is, you know, that's fueling a, a law and order problem. But my, my point is that if you have role models in, in government at the level of the Minister for Education who almost killed his ex-wife and the Prime Minister's daughter, what sort of message is that sending to the rest of the population about standards? 
Well, I mean, that, that that's the issue, isn't it? And when you've got the illegal behaviour, uh, you know, the nepotism, uh, the cronyism going on, it leads to the general impression that things are not all um, well in Fiji, that there are serious issues, uh, which then leads to speculation that perhaps the military will step in, and that's when people don't want to invest. If you've no. got if you want to build a business in Fiji, you look at all those sort of geopolitical situations, you think, well, should, is this a place where I want to put two million dollars or five million dollars or ten million dollars? Or even more if you're going to build a resort when there's instability. You think well exactly. This is this maybe is, I mean, I won't. And, and no, and the instability continues. I mean, this is the crazy thing about all of this. All this government has to do is to operate within the parameters of the 2013 constitution, which they may not have agreed with, but they have actually sworn on the Bible to defend because it's, yeah. <laughs> it's part of the oath of office of every single public official from the president down, including all of the MPs who are now saying the constitution's rubbish and they don't like it. And well, all why the soldiers. You, why, did you, why did you swear on the, <laughs> on the Bible you know, and, and as you know, they're sort of very, very fundamentalist Christians. Why did you swear on the Bible to uphold a document that you don't believe is valid? Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Because even yeah. all the soldiers have sworn to uphold the con Constitution. Yes, so, absolutely. You know, yeah. there, there will come a point where the RFMF will have to do something. I don't know. I think, we're rapidly, I think we're rapidly approaching that, yeah? Yeah. And that's why this clash between the country's lawyers and the judiciary is potentially the watershed moment, yeah? Yeah. Because when it gets to that stage, it's not politicians going head-to-head -head and the military saying, well, look, you guys have got to work this out. It's the country's lawyers saying the judiciary are actually breaking the supreme law. Mm. That's very dangerous. Well, because you're losing one of those arms of a modern democracy where the judiciary is separated from the politicians, which is separated from the military. Well, uh, my, it's my view that the judiciary is no longer in Fiji is no longer independent and takes its instructions from the, from the government of the day. And that is a very serious situation. Well, as you said, that's a constitutional coup. Yeah. Well, look, I, 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 I'm, you know, I've got to be careful here. Of there course. are very, there are very good judges. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying the judiciary as a whole is, is complicit in all of this. But there is one individual, the acting Chief Justice, who is defying the Constitution. He's about to go head-to-head -head with the Fiji Law Society in relation to all of that. And his conduct since, since this issue was raised where the Fiji Law Society said you need to rescind these illegal uh, uh, appointments, it's been extraordinary. I mean, last week there was an induction of new lawyers and in his speech, the acting chief justice castigated the president of the Fiji Law Society in public. <laughs> <laughs> so they're asking for it. <laughs> they are asking for it. And but, but for it. you know the thing is, Graham, is that every time we 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 see this, I just sit there and you know die a little bit inside that the country of my birth can't get its act together. And this is know, not very difficult stuff. You know, and, no. But this is why we commentate on these things. This is why we write about these things, because we've got a voice. And if nobody in Fiji will use their voice, then we need to.
Well, precisely. And look, the agenda here is, the, 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 you know, the integrity of the institutions of state. You know, if the institution, mm. if people who occupy the principal institutions of state do their jobs and adhere to the rule of law, there is no reason for any of these places to have these difficulties. Yeah. But, no, exactly. but, but, but it's essentially a group of individuals who think that the law who thinks the law doesn't apply to them, that they're above the law and that they can take it upon themselves to to either violate it or change it. And we know what happens in Fiji if you try and do that. Well, yes, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, the, the, everything that I've seen about the head of the RFMF tells me that this is a guy that has integrity uh, all his public statements are about adhering to the constitution. They, these, you would be a stupid person to ignore that. In Fiji. well, he look. The thing is, raw, raw John A. Colony Y is a person of immense integrity. Yeah, he's he's from a chiefly family. He is universally respected, and he is bending over backwards to accommodate this behaviour. That's the problem, yeah? He's, he's in a very insidious position now because his officers around him perceive that he has been weak in standing up for this and are pressuring him to, to, to intervene. Now, obviously under those circumstances, if he won't do it... Um, they will. The history... The history <laughs> exactly, and the history of, of coups in, in all of these countries is that it's a junior officer who does it, and of course, in 1987, it was Sidi Rambuka who carried out the coup in yep. Fiji, while while the head of the RFMF, Radu Apeli Nailati Kao, who's who's just the immediate, uh, you know, one of the recent presidents of the country, was out of the country. And wouldn't this be the irony of ironies, Cam? Yeah. If 36, if 36 years after he carried out the the two coups in Fiji in 1987, Sidi Rambuka was removed at gunpoint himself. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sitting here from afar looking at it and I'm reading what you're writing and I'm picking up what my friends are saying um, you know, inside Fiji and they're all saying the same thing. This feels like we're heading towards an intervention. Let's not use the word coup, but an intervention from the RFMF. Yeah, I don't like using the coup word, but, you know, a, a constitutional coup is that it's worked out within the constitution uh, but the government falls. A cuckoo is, uh, you know, you you will leave your offices now, or we'll we, or we'll we will shoot you. Force, or we'll well, no, they they, they never do. They that. never but do they, that. No. They, 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 they being prodded by an automatic weapon is usually enough to get you out of your seat. <laughs> well, <laughs> usually, even someone like you, Cam. <laughs> just usually, just a sharp bayonet will do that, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, the only time there's been actually shooting is when Spate was involved, and um, that's why I made the comment about. It. I'm not sure he's all there together in his head, um, because no. Uh, well, he he was you know. he was a megalomaniac, and you know he paid a terrible price. You know, and yet this government wants to free him. You know, this is a guy who was sentenced to death. It was commuted to life imprisonment. When you're sentenced to death, uh, you know somebody somebody uh, you know pronounces that you will hang until dead. Um, and that's subsequently commuted. There is no uh, no mechanism for you to, you know, to be released. It's for the term of your natural life, right? Exactly. But, these, I mean, that, but, but again, these people think that 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 that, that a, a well, a, you know, a, an absolute convention like that is, is is something that they don't have to take any notice of. 
I mean, you know, he he was out on an island somewhere, but he's now, you know, residing in Mboro prison. Yeah, um, on, yeah, just outside Suva. Just outside Suva, but it's not a pleasant place as you drive past. You can see it's not a pleasant place, but it's certainly better than the old Suva prison in Lamy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not a pleasant place. I mean, I know I know people who've done time in there, and yeah, you're you're in a small cell with somebody else, uh, and and it's a bucket. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, not, yeah, not the kind of place you and I would enjoy particularly. No, 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 we wouldn't. <laughs> look, um, yeah. Yeah, look, I'm sure we're going to have to talk to you again uh, shortly as things develop. Um, but let's just stay in touch. And uh, yes, mate. it's been Happy a real pleasure, been a real pleasure talking to you today about uh, Fiji and catching up with our our joint homeland, really. Yes. And yes. Uh, thank you, know, you, Cam. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, it's been a real pleasure. Graham has a deep love of the country of his birth, just like me. He's also connected into every aspect of Fijian political life. We used to spend hours over a fair few gins in Suva discussing everything about the country of our birth. It's disappointing to see and hear what is going on up there. But if anybody knows, Graham knows. Don't forget to send comments on Graham's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.